0: All asylums at the time, you know, they made patients do chores and laundry and work at the gift shop or whatever it is. Um, but often that was sort of part of a jobs program so that they could leave and then go have a, you know, a reference and a resume. That's not what was happening at Crownsville. This was really a recreation of the plantation structure. And Doctors weren't even really trying to hide it.
1: Antonia Hilton is our guest on Naked, and she is talking about a a real-life mental asylum that was for Black folks only and what happened behind those closed doors. Sit back, relax. It's an education today on Naked.
2: Are you all about the NBA action? You've got to try Pick 6, the newest fantasy app from DraftKings, an official partner of the NBA. Like, will they score more or less than 30 points, or have more or less than eight assists? Lock them in and compete against others for a shot at huge cash prizes. Download the DraftKings Pick Six app now and get started with code TBE. New customers can earn a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 in Pick Six credits when you deposit $5 or more. Only on DraftKings Pick Six with code TBE. The crown is yours. One offer per new customer. Minimum $5 deposit to receive a match of up to $100 in Pick6 credits. Non-withdrawable and valid for Pick6 use only. expire after 180 days. Gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER. 18+ in most eligible states. Age varies by jurisdiction. Eligibility restrictions apply. Pick6 not available in all states. For up-to-date list of states visit dkng.co/pick6states. Void where prohibited. See terms at pick6.draftkings.com/promos.
6: Are you ready to share some joy and celebrate International Women's Day? M&Ms has partnered with iHeart for Women Take the Mic, treating you to the most uplifting and empowering stories of women supporting and celebrating each other. And of course, there is a smooth and creamy companion for your listening pleasure, Peanut Butter M&Ms, because they're just another way to help treat yourself in situations where you deserve a little added delight, like listening to your favorite podcast, Happy International Women's day
7: it's the greatest of sports and entertainment connected with every champion they carry champions to be a champion a the champion they carry champion they girl did got a champion and carry champion and carry champion greatest greatest of sports and entertainment
1: Hey everybody! Welcome back. Another edition of Naked. I have to thank you guys. Really, we're going strong here on the podcast. Uh, slow and steady is how you win the race. I, I wish um, that I could press a super subscribe button and all of you tell your your friends to listen. Um, but if you have a moment, this is a this is an episode that you need to forward. It's it's an episode for me um, that feels ripe, mature, destined to have. Within the last few weeks, I have been um, really making an effort to include our history in a very powerful way. And by our history, I mean African-American history. Uh, I don't know if you saw this, but I was on CNN and I was sitting next to the editor-in-chief, a guy by the name of Rich Lowry. And he is the editor-in-chief of, uh, I think it's the Nationalist Review it doesn't matter because he's not smart. But what matters is that we were talking about Nikki Haley's comments, the comments about in which she has said, one, she didn't really know what so what the civil rights war was about, which is clearly about slavery. And then the second, the second uh, or the most recent comments she made about this is not a racist country. And I was asked, is this a racist country? And I said, it absolutely is a racist country. Nikki Haley thought, process and nikki haley for those who may not know this is a woman who is um running for the gop nomination to be uh president of the united states so her and trump are going at it some people like her they say she's less dangerous than trump and i and i agree with that but her recent comments on this country uh make me feel like she's trying to please her party a party uh, of republicans that do not want to talk about slavery that will not acknowledge that this country is racist and it was built on racism. And what has been happening in rapid pace, if you guys have been paying attention, uh, they've been trying to erase all the dirty parts of American history, which happened to be related to African-American history, which happened to be related to black folks. First, she couldn't say that the Civil War was about slavery. Then she said this country isn't racist. And I went on CNN and definitely said, no, this country is fundamentally racist. Today's guest wrote a book called uh, about an institution in maryland about a it was an institution only early in the early jim crow era it was an institution a mental asylum if you will only for black folks it was called crownsville and it was in maryland and her book is called madness race and insanity in the jim crow asylum era and so I really, truly felt like this book to me was a microcosm, an example of of what this country is. It talks about how uh, the reason why this this mental institution was built was because people who owned slaves, people who still wanted to extend slavery uh, by enacting Jim Crow laws, basically said the people who were emancipated, the free blacks that were no longer slaves couldn't handle their freedom and they were turning crazy. So they should all be put into a facility. What you mean? I'm crazy because I'm no longer a slave. What? And so I don't know how to act with this newfound freedom. I mean, that's what they'll tell you, right? That's what the history books will tell you as well. But the truth is no one ever thought that slavery had an impact on the mental. Like, how is that even possible? Jim Crow laws were state and local laws introduced in the southern United States in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that enforced racial segregation. Jim Crow being a pejorative term for an African-American, such laws remained in force until 1965. 1965, right in the ripe time of our our civil rights era. My point being is that if we go back to this country's history, there's always been some sort of law in place that separated us from them. Blacks from those some sort of law that said blacks were not as human, did not have full humanity. In fact, the Constitution has a three fifths clause, right? I said this on CNN when I was battling with this guy who said, all men are created equal. Yeah, that's what our founding fathers wanted us to believe. But all men are not created equal. It's impossible. It's impossible when in the Constitution it says, if you are not free, you're three-fifths of a human being. Tell me, how do you get to three-fifths, the three-fifths clause? How is that even possible? And ever since the inception of this country, Black folks have been fighting to show their humanity. Which is why I believe, fast forward to present day, we are murdered at a disproportionate rate. That's why we have institutionals. We have institutions that put us in different um, pockets of the world. We have redlining uh, where we can't live in certain neighborhoods. We have a financial crisis because we have to fight in so many different spaces to prove that we are worthy. And it's been that way since the beginning of time. And I hate arguing with people with facts The long and the short of this is because I'm on my I'm on my uh, soapbox right now. The long and the short of this is you have to be so aware of your history so that you cannot allow someone else to write it for you. And in real time with this current election, with this election year in place, they are trying to rewrite our history. They are trying to racially gaslight black folks and this country by saying slavery wasn't that bad slavery was actually good slavery got better when did slavery get better how how does slavery get better what are you talking about like listen to that and she writes this book our guest Antonia Hilton writes this book um, and it is a perfect example of why we find ourselves as a culture behind the finish line it's why we find ourselves trying to catch up because we've always been in positions of less than or been told that we are less than or have been put in places where we are not capable of succeeding because people don't see our full humanity. Crownsville is the Black-only mental asylum. It was ran by only white folks, so you could imagine how they treated the Black people inside of that asylum. It stayed open until 2004, and it is a honest real terrifying educational um sad but also so so hopeful hopeful at the same time book on what was happening to black people who were forgotten who were considered less than and there's still that today so many of us are forgotten considered less than Antonia Hilton is a award-winning journalist. Uh, She is smart. She has clearly done her research and well-educated and she's on a book tour. And I really, really want to encourage you guys, go out and support. It is something that I believe you will love because it's teaching you about a history that we have that we don't many of us don't know about again correspondent author producer antonia hilton on naked today champion and carry and carry Antonia, thank you so much for being here on Naked. And I know you're on a book tour. I knew you were uh, traveling and I think you end the book tour next week. Congratulations. Uh, I hope it's going the way you want it to go in whatever way that may be. Um, But I wanted to begin with one. I'm so impressed. Um, I downloaded the book today on Audible, but I am just really impressed with all that I've been able to read. I saw a lot of your uh, your interviews and I think this is going to be a great podcast. So thank you for being here. Thanks for Um, having me. Of course, of course. Okay, so I will begin with some of the most basic questions. In terms of, uh, you know, and this is not even so much your resume, but you are a award-winning journalist. What what made you decide that this was the world in which you wanted to live in terms of journalism? Well,
0: uh, it's hard for me to pinpoint an exact moment. I think it's more of an environment. I'm one of seven kids. Both of my parents are lawyers um, and My mom in particular did a lot of pro bono work when I was growing up. So she supported uh, immigrants who needed legal representation. She supported women who were incarcerated often sort of as accessories to crimes that their husbands had committed. And my mom did a lot of this work in her free time, completely for free. And I always grew up just admiring that, that somehow my mom was raising seven kids, working a full-time job and doing all of that. And so I think both of my parents just really instilled in us Um, this idea that, you know, you are your, your sibling or your neighbor's keeper that you are part of being a good person, um, is making time in your life uh, or living a life that reflects your values or your, your dream about what community really means. Um, and I, I, I don't know that I could have articulated that to you when I was young. It's just more of that kind of feeling in that culture, like, sitting around the dinner table and my parents debating politics or explaining to us why something going on in the world was wrong, um, that they just cared that we grew up with a certain um, sense of justice and fairness and the importance of hearing other people's perspectives and stories. And so well, by the time I became a journalist, people in my family were like, yeah, that makes sense.
1: <laughs> Nobody yeah, was surprised. Con- yeah. That's- considering how you grew up. Yeah. I, you know, you, you said you're one of seven. Where are you in the Seven leg? I'm number three, and I'm solidly a middle child, and I have all the symptoms of middle child syndrome. (laughs) Okay, I don't know what that, I don't know what that is, because I grew up as a, I have brothers and sisters, but I grew up as an only child with my mom. So what is, what are the symptoms, if you will, of a middle child?
0: So middle children are stereotypically, um, you know, they're loud, they talk a lot, they want to share their opinion about things, um, because they're in the middle, and they feel like they're fighting to be heard, you know, they're not the oldest and the wisest, and they're not the baby who's getting all the attention. So they really have to go an extra mile to make sure people pay attention to them. And that was me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I was in musical theater. I was in dance. I was in like, at one point, I was in like seven choirs. And I was doing wow. all this stuff. So, you know, it's just, I was like, you're going to hear me. I don't care if it's you're going
1: to and you're going to see me and I'm going to do all the things and you better know I'm doing all the things. I love it. I, I don't know, that might have a little more only child to it. I'm not for sure yet. But okay. So, okay, I I would like if you could. Uh you have written a book and I I think that when you can read a book that has a storyline that educates you is is and hold your attention. I think um, is is very difficult to do in these days when we have so much information at, literally at our fingertips and the attention span of a pea. Um, you wrote a book, um, "Madness, Race, and Insanity in a Jim Crow Asylum." Uh, the story, according to research and what I've been able to ascertain, and you have shared, you uh, found out about this particular uh, and for lack of a better. Um, term this mental facility, uh probably when you were a freshman in college, and you always always was you were fascinated by it. Tell me about um, this this field trip if you would, that led you to this to this um, facility uh, that was kept for black patients only back in the Jim Crow era.
0: I was just about eighteen nineteen years old, a freshman on harvard's campus and I stumbled into a class that was all about the history of psychiatry. And I think I was drawn to that class in part because of my family, too, because we were so close and so loud. But the one topic that was always off limits was anything having to deal with your mental well-being. You know, I had the kind of family structure that was kind of like, pray about it on Sunday or go to your room and calm down. And, um, you know, talking about family secrets or tough memories, that was really difficult for some of my elders and even my parents. And so uh, I think I kind of just went looking for someone who wanted to have that conversation with me. And I loved the history, but I noticed very quickly that really, for the most part, when you learn about this history, it's mostly from the perspective of white people. And so I really had to go looking, um, hunting for stories that represented Black people and Black families when they needed mental health care. And I knew they existed because... In my own family history and in the secrets that we kept, I knew that we had loved ones who were sent to places just like Crownsville. And so I found a network of these former segregated asylums that used to be all over the country. And Crownsville really, I guess, pulled me in because it closed in 2004. So this is a very close history, a place where there are living people and patients who can still, to this day, talk to you about the experience there. The buildings were still standing and are still standing in Maryland. And then there were tons of records that I could request to access from the state. And so it seemed like this unique opportunity because often what you see happen with places like these old asylums is that, you know, they shutter, they're turned into a haunted house or a Halloween ride. No one's really preserving the history and the record keeping. And this was different. And I felt like at first it was this personal mission, right, to try to find myself to better understand Black Americans' journeys through the mental health care system and maybe just feel a little bit less alone. But then I started to realize, really, as we got closer to 2020 and I was, you know, an adult living in the real world and no longer a student, um, I realized I think that a lot of people want to talk about mental health right now. But I think a lot of people don't have the tools, they don't have the words, and they certainly don't know their history.
1: You mentioned in the book and you also just share with us now that uh, when your family, particularly in black families, I think this is not um, something that that's something that is very familiar. We don't discuss mental health. Uh, I I remember asking my mother to go with me to therapy and she's like, why would I do that? You know, she was like, why would I sit there and talk to someone who doesn't know us? This is our business. You know, it's not their business. And she went with me, and, 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 I, and I share this story because it was a disaster. And she went with me, and she was, you know, wasn't there for it. She, she thought it was ridiculous. It was insulting. She didn't like this woman giving her advice. It was, it was invasive. And, and at the end of the day, it was incredibly vulnerable. But I later found, to your point of going to Crownsville, and to your point about um, Black people, uh, our culture not really embracing its mental history not talking about it as a family. I later found that there was a through line in my family of of mental unwellness that people did not want to talk about. And so you find this facility, you dig into its history, and you find out that Black people um, not only were sent there there were Black people who actually built the facility and then later were put inside of the same facility. Explain that to me. This is so fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's, it's an unbelievable. I, I tell people that to me, it's almost like a biblical tale, right? It almost sounds like a myth because it's so strange. It's so strange and yet it's so American. So it, the hospital was built in 1911 in the heart of the woods in Maryland. And unlike every other mental institution that the state of Maryland has already constructed for white people, they decide that they are going to force their future patients to build it for themselves from the ground up. And so when the first patients arrive, there's no hospital at all. There's no ward. There's no place for them to rest, to eat. They have to build all those things. They're in a cold forest and they have to clear the forest. They have to construct roads. They have to move a railway They have to pour cement and build a foundation and erect these massive brick buildings that still stand more than a century later. I mean, that tells you just how fine the craftsmanship was, right? Like, um, of course, immediately it raises these questions, too, for me of like, well, how sick or unwell could somebody really be in that moment? Right. To be so unwell that they're no longer welcome in society, that they've been deemed by Officials and by authorities as needing to be institutionalized, but they are so
1: healthy that they can build a place like this. Like this. Like this. I appreciate y'all for listening. We have Antonia Hilton on the podcast, but first we got to pay some bills. You can fast forward if you don't want to listen to commercials. I know how that gets.
7: Every champion and carry champions to be a champion. A champion and carry champion and carry champion. A champion and carry champion and carry champion. The greatest, greatest in sports and entertainment, connected with.
6: Happy International Women's Day
7: Every champion and carry champions to be a champion, and champion carry champion they girl you didn got a champion and carry champion and carry champion
1: greatest sports naked naked We're back now with more Antonia Hilton. Which goes to this thing that we use. I'm sorry, but the saying we say often, we built this place for free. I, w- I literally say this about this country because it's so frustrating for people um, who attempt to erase America's complicated and, and very unfortunate history with slavery and, and and what we were actually, as this culture brought here to do, to, to work, to build for free, free labor. So here you have this facility. They say that they're unwell, but they're making them build the, I can't, it's just so frustrating. But but completely true of America. Go on. I'm sorry. <laughs> right,
0: and, it's, and, and, and so you're you're not surprised, but you are shocked. And, yeah. um, you know, and the thing is, it's not a, a sort of casual occurrence. This isn't just a coincidence. Doctors had been for years in the years after slavery talking about black people's bodies and minds and debating their different theories about what was going on with us. And instead of imagining that, oh, perhaps enslavement caused them a lot of mental suffering, they actually start to think, you know, emancipation was a mistake. And that's part of the belief system that informs their decision to build a segregated institution in the first place, but then to also kind of turn the hospital itself into this antebellum, you know, good old days style plantation. So even after they build the buildings, the patients then go on to run a massive, highly productive farm that grows year after year after year. They run the kitchen, they run the laundry, they run the more. You mean, they're running and offsetting the cost of their own care in a way. I mean, all asylums at the time, you know, they made patients do chores and laundry and work at the gift shop or whatever it is. Um, but often that was sort of part of a jobs program. So that they sure. could leave and then go have, a you know, a reference and a resume. That's not what was happening at Crownsville. This was really a recreation of the plantation structure and doctors weren't even really trying to hide it. Um, and that goes on for decades. I mean, well into the 60s, they're using the patients in this way. They're renting them out to private businesses uh, all for no or very little pay, you know, in the way that we think of prison labor now. And, yes, that's you know, nice. for me... And I'm curious if you'll feel this way for me, finding this information out as much as it made me angry. It actually also gave me a lot of compassion for people in my family who are afraid of therapy, afraid of psychiatry, maybe are a little Correct. bit hesitant about doctor's appointments sure. because yeah. you realize, oh, my, my grandparents, it, it, for example, my mom yeah. was born in Baltimore. My grandparents yeah. lived in Baltimore like they would have heard these rumors and these stories. Right. And so yeah. my, that's their belief. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Can yes. we be so surprised?
1: Yes. No, my, my mind, as you're saying this is, is, is I'm, I'm blown away only because we are so, um, we forget to take the extra layer and we don't know much about our history and we have to ask these questions because, you know, our family doesn't like to talk about it. So if you, if, 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 If our culture, if black folks, especially uh, during the slave period and the Jim Crow era, um, even up into the sixties, as you mentioned, how they were using these 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 patients as if they were prison laborers. If there is a um, difficult misunderstanding, abusive relationship with therapy, um, mental health. Of course, we're, we're not going to want to be uh, willing to talk about it or be a part of a system that you know is um, really a slave system, if you will. Um, just we're allowed to walk around. You know, I, I, I wonder if in your book, you knew that you were uncovering um, the relationship uh, that Black folks have with with mental uh, with mental uh, health, meaning the reason why they don't trust it, the reason why my mom's like I'm not gonna go and see a therapist, the reason why my grandmother and yeah, you know what I mean. I know. Yeah, you know. I think in the beginning,
0: especially because I was so young, right? I'm just fascinated by this place, and I'm actually overwhelmed by it in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was. It, it was within a year or two of doing the research and really sitting with it, se- sitting with the photographs that I uncovered, the hospital records, letters written by the racist administrators who wrote the place and state leaders who refused to let black people work there and were actively fighting to maintain segregation. I mean, when you look at this stuff over time, you start to see, um, you know, just the world that you're your own loved ones your own family lived in not even all that long ago not and, even all that long ago uh, yeah and and yeah. i think it was that realization too that then informed my decision to um like write a couple personal essays in the book so in a few sections of the book at the beginning in the introduction and then a couple times along the way i i bring in a couple personal family anecdotes and i do that because um you know, on the one hand, as a journalist, we always disclose any personal connection. And so I felt like the reader should know I come from a family with a history of mental trauma um, and of in uh, an impact from racist abuse in the country. And so I wanted anyone who, you know, bought this book to know what journey, what kind of narrator they should trust and listen to. Um, but I think the other piece of it was that I wanted to actually honor some people in my family and contextualize their experiences, or their lack of trust, or their fear, or their loss, because in the past I, we had so misunderstood it, or hush hushed it, or hid it. And I think so much of change for the Black community can come from seeing this history, feeling it, and knowing that you're. It's not just your family and and sure. something quiet and shameful that happened to sure. your lineage you're actually part of a much bigger system and problem and that can hurt but it also really does remind you you're not alone
1: yeah and that's important because then you start to feel safe um and 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 the work that you're talking about you know uh the, the the mental health aspect uh, of the reason why Black folks don't trust you know doctors and and don't want to ha- and talk about therapy especially um, when it comes to mental health uh, it is so connected to how this country has um, found new ways to make the finish line more difficult for us as as a as a people so first there is slavery then there's Jim Crow then there's segregation and now there's this new if you ask me this there's this new, um, this new attempt to really rewrite our history. Words like D-E-I have become bad words and, um, and, and, and critical race theory. There's just always a new uh, way to make it more difficult to understand um, what really happened uh, at the beginning of this country's history, which makes it impossible to get over because you have to know where you were before you know where you're going. And I think your book is such a a beautiful way and in a very honest way. And by beautiful, I mean just the, just the rawness and the realness of it Um, to talk about something that we don't like to talk about. Can you tell the listeners more about Crownsville um, and who ran the, the facility? You share some very um, painful moments about how the the white people who ran the facility treated the patients.
0: Absolutely. Um, So in those early years from, about 1911 up to the m- mid you know, 1950s or so, the hospital is run primarily by or exclusively by white people, many of whom are very openly racist. I mean, open about the fact that they see the patients that they're supposed to be treating as less than human. Uh, there are tons of incidents of racial violence, allegations from the black community of all kinds of physical abuse, sexual abuse of patients in those years of starvation. Um, patients are sleeping at times head to feet, two people in a bed, like a twin bed, uh, or they're left to sleep on benches or outside on porches. Um, and it's overcrowded and incredibly filthy. And so, you know, I, I bring you into the world in the early part of the book um, and, and bring you into some stories of patients and, um, and challenges at the hospital so that you can really see just how how dire um, and how little there was available to to Black Americans in terms of therapy or care at that time. Then one of my favorite parts of the book is when things get a little bit more messy and complicated, frankly, and Black men and women start getting jobs for the first time in the 1950s and 60s, and there's this really fascinating power structure and power struggle going on where there's still white employees who think they run the place. There's new Black employees who really know and love their patients and in many cases grew up with their patients in their own neighborhoods. And then there's the patients kind of at the bottom of that totem pole. And you see the, the difficult position that the Black employees kind of in the middle of all that are put in as they try to save patient lives, but also kind of bump up against the reality of a system that was created by people who don't look like them and don't care as much for them. Um, And so it was really, it's amazing. There are all these women and men who are in their 90s, 80s and 90s now, who who still live in Maryland, who got their first jobs as teenagers or in their 20s there, who can still tell you the stories of being there in the 50s. And nobody, just for years until I knocked on their door and called their house a million times, you know, (laughs) nobody thought. Yeah, (laughs) I'm not getting. Nobody thought to, to give them the spotlight, the chance to talk about what it was like to be really these pioneers who come into a place with a such a difficult and sordid history like that and to try to every day do what they could with their very small amount of power um, to save patients' lives. And so, um, you know, the book is it's about the horror and the ugliness of that early period, but it follows it all the way through the century long history. So you see the hospital's transformation And I really try to center Black patients and Black employees in it, because for so long, their stories haven't been the ones that we've listened to. We haven't given them their real shine. They haven't gotten their flowers. And I really want this book to change that.
1: You you mentioned about how they started to take care of the patients in a way that only someone who really loved and cared about them could. Uh, Give us some examples of that, because I think that's beautiful as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Um, There are so many examples. One that I think about all the time is a woman who's still alive in her 90s named Marie Goff, who gets her very first job there in the mid-1950s. And she's assigned to work on a really overcrowded and dingy and terrible ward um, working with men. And there's a guy on her ward who she gets to take outside one day, and he tells her that he hasn't seen the sky or the sun in a really long time. And so she kind of looks into his record and tries to figure out what's his story. Why is he here? And it turns out that he was picked up by her supervisor, who was a white man and some authorities in Baltimore, because they overheard him speaking in a British accent. And they didn't believe that there could be Black people who had British accents. And it turns out that he had been born in London and was a jockey and happened to come to the United States and then fall on hard times. But he really was British. and yeah. It's not until she sees him as a human and and wants to have a conversation with him and then wants to look into his story that very basic information about him comes to light. The other story that always sticks with me is of a woman um, named Betty Hawkins who comes to work at the facility and a patient has been complaining and complaining for uh, years before she's arrived and nobody's been listening to him. She talks to them and finds out that they have a phone number that they would like her to call to tell their brother to come pick them up. That's all that this patient has been asking for for such a long time. So she actually does it. Wow. Lo and behold, the brother answers the phone, comes and gets him. They hadn't seen each other in 27 years. Wow. And it's just because no one had seen that patient's humanity, right? They didn't care. They didn't listen. They walked by his cell and, and didn't want to hear his his uh, pain that something so simple as as just making a phone call to reconnect them with their family and with people who care and love about them. You know, that step hadn't been taken for so long. And so, you know, one of the, the real messages of the story for me is the fact that when you have real community and care and when you have doctors and nurses who look like the people they serve, who know the people they serve, who went to church with or went to school with the people they serve, the outcomes are really different. And it And it doesn't even have to do with technology or new medication. It's just caring about your community that can. Seeing
1: the humanity in every single person, uh, which is what this country has taken away from Black people for so long. African-Americans still ask for that in so many institutions. You've highlighted it in this book, in the medical institution, but it's finance, it's education, it's the judicial system. It's every single institution in this country. If you don't have someone who looks like you, making decisions uh, in d- in places of power, you find yourself often marginalized and overlooked. And all it took was a phone call to get this man to see his 20s, his brother he hadn't seen in twenty seven years. Like it, it, those stories to me are so fascinating.
7: Every champion and carry champions to be a champion. A champion and carry champion and carry champion. champion and carry champion and carry champion. Greatest, greatest in sports and entertainment. Connected with.
6: Happy International Women's Day.
7: Every champion, and carry champions to be a champion, champion, they carry champion, they
1: champion, champion, You talk about this place, uh, Brownsville, not closing until 2004. That was just 20 years ago. So whoever is listening to this podcast right now, you were alive. You know, you should, or at least a thought, at least, (laughs) by the time in which this place shut down. Um, What led to its closing? Oof,
0: that is another favorite part of my book because this is the part that, oof, another important piece that I want people to really take from this is so toward the end of the 20th century, what you start to see happen to asylums, these new medications arrive and people want to bring patients back to the community and they feel, or at least they're claiming publicly that they feel more sympathy for people suffering. So they come up with this plan to build community mental health care centers all around the United States and to shut down the big asylums. And Crownsville is sort of targeted as one place that that needs to close. Um, But at the very same time that this deinstitutionalization and sympathy movement is happening, the civil rights movement has exploded. Black people are protesting and getting arrested in the streets. There's a big backlash to the Black power movement. And so more and more Black people are being funneled into jails and prisons and they're having less access to spaces that are hospital-like or therapeutic. And so one of the things I track at the back of the book is how towards, as you get closer and closer to 2004, Crownsville almost kind of goes back in a circle to its early days of being a little bit more like a prison than it is Mm. like a healthcare facility. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even the employees are noticing this and getting incredibly frustrated. I tell the story of one black doctor who is on his uh, shift one day. And sees a, a police car come down the road and come to bring a patient to the check-in room. And the patient is a six-year-old boy in a karate uniform. And this is in the 80s. And he's sort of like, huh, something's wrong here. And so he talks to the police. They're like, he's been acting up. He he needs to be committed to the asylum. And immediately the doctor knows something's wrong because the boy does not appear to have any issues does not, there's no adult or parent with him who can give any more context. And he clearly has just come from a karate class. Mm -hmm. And so he gets on the phone and he has to fight a judge and talk to the judge's staff. And finally, after hours of trying to reunite this boy with his family, he's able to do that and to avoid this boy, you know, having his, at just six years old, being committed to a place like this. But it starts to show you, right, that police were interacting with the mental health care system, that they were trying to choose and decide who gets brought to these institutions. And it it says so much, right, about the way that they would view a little black boy, you know, who's coming from karate class. And even if he had misbehaved in that class, it's hard to imagine, right, what a child could possibly do at a karate class that could warrant them being arrested by multiple officers in that way and brought to a, really an adult mental institution. And so it's stories that, that, like that that really, I think, changed me, that kind of um, propelled me while I was working on this reporting. Because right now, when you look around our country, many communities in the United States, the, the pr- primary and largest mental health care provider is a jail or prison. And many patients who struggle with schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, um, they will tell you if you talk to them that they couldn't get to see doctors or they couldn't get sure. care so they were arrested for making some kind of mistake. Sure. And, and so when you see this era in which the asylums are shutting down, the prisons are growing, and Black people are kind of being disproportionately affected by those shifts, you see that Black patients are a really important part of all these pivotal transformations toward the end of the century. And, uh, you know, by the time Crownsville closes, it's this really heartbreaking scene where, on the one hand, you know, it has this difficult history. And so you want to imagine something better is coming, but you also see the writing on the wall. We didn't build the community mental health centers. All we did was build new jails, prisons, and juvenile justice centers. And I think you know, at least for Black folks, like we all know what came next.
1: Yeah. Wow. Um, If you could, I don't know if you think of Crownsville this way, but if you could talk about your book, Madness, what is it a microcosm of? What? How would you describe what this book, which I think is a clear reflection of 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 what's what's happening in our country and has happened in our country, how? What would be the the correlation for you?
0: I think that Crownsville is. Not just a Maryland story, it's a truly American story because the institution in all of those years comes to represent and reflect all of the fights this country has had over how it can live up to its promises. The basic core tenets of what America likes to tell itself it is, all of those battles are reflected in what happened to the patients and to the employees of this place. From emancipation and the fight for freedom to battles over integration and black people's, you know, simple right to get jobs at places like hospitals to, uh, you know, the criminal justice system and over policing issues in America. And then now to the current moment, you know, post pandemic, I mean, I bring you past 2004 and I end the book with a reflection on what happened to Jordan Neely in New York City. Um, the black young man uh, murdered by a former Marine um, on a New York City subway um, Who's you know, the trial will come relatively soon where, where you know, he has pled not guilty and, and we'll see what, what a New York City jury um, decides. But oh, I reflect on that case because for so many black Americans, it came to represent the intersections of all these things and the culmination of really a century of this history. That I think some people know in their families, they know in their stories, they know um, even from their own experiences uh, in in these facilities around the U.S., but we haven't quite named it, we haven't quite spelled it out. And I guess the other way I'd put it is that we think a lot about the slavery to prison pipeline or the slavery to school to prison pipeline, but I would argue that the asylum, that the mental health care system is on that timeline, too. And so mm-hmm. we need to think a lot more about why it has all these connections. And if we all want a better mental health care system in the future, we we, I think most Americans of every background know that this system isn't serving any of us, not just splash folks. Sure. Well, I, I think you need to know what went wrong before you can build yourself something better going forward.
1: Your history is is your address to your freedom, if you ask me. And so I think that your book is necessary. I think that um, it explains so much, at least for me, why there is this complicated history in my personally and my family with mental health and, and, and not being willing, willing to talk about what is wrong or perhaps seek help because of what they have heard in the past, whether it be urban legend or true stories that my great, great grandmother witnessed, uh, when her friends and family attempted to find help or seek help in a mental asylum. Um, and so it's important that we understand that history, so that we can understand the present relationship, and then find ways in which we can figure that out and solve the problem. And and I and I feel like um, your book is just one of many examples of us really. Really taking the culture specifically, taking an ownership and, and not allowing our educational system to tell us what is right and what is wrong, our medical system to tell us what is right and what is wrong, where it's just always been this way. If we dig a little, we work a little, we ask more questions, we become more curious about who we are and where we come from. We have these beautiful stories that are painful, but honest and lead us to much more for me, at least a revelation of of what we're dealing with in terms of mental health. Um, Antonia Hilton, this book is amazing. I see why you've won so many awards as a journalist. I I wish you nothing but the best. Uh, I will say this just on a personal note. Um, I I, I sat and watched a few of your interviews and I just thought to myself, well, this is her calling. I hope she understands what it is and we need more of this. Um, Meaning, have to tell our stories because sometimes we don't have the time, the resources, the uh, ability or capability to do so. And so I appreciate you doing that because we are often unseen and over police shout out to Nacy Nash and you see us and you recognize uh, the, the unfairness that exists. So thank you so much uh, for all that you do. Good luck with your book tour. I think it ends next week in Brooklyn, maybe when does it end? Yes. I'll
0: be back here um, at NYU. And then, I'll be at some festivals throughout the year, but the craziness calms down um, in early February. So thank you so much. This is so lovely. Like I just, um, I really enjoyed this conversation and this is a story that's been like a, a a burning fire in my heart for the last 10, 11 years of my life. So to be able to share it, um, especially with other black men and women who like are thinking about and living these experiences every day, it just means everything to me right now. And and, I've loved this conversation. So thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for being here. Thank you for madness. You guys go out and get it. Madness, race and insanity in a Jim Crow asylum. Um, you you know, the youth is upon you and so is greatness. So I expect so much more. I thank you for everything. I really, truly do. <laughs> Have a wonderful, wonderful book tour. Thank you, Antonia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you.
1: I call it erasure. Um, it's an effort to remove something. If you write something on a piece of paper, Uh, and it's not back in the day when you used to write, no one writes anymore, (laughs) but when you would write something, you'd get an eraser, right? You use a pencil and you erase it so you can do over, you can write the word over, you can start again. And I believe in real time, so many people, especially in politics, are trying to rewrite history, American history, African American history. They're trying to start over. They're reversing history as we speak. I can give you incidents As of late, no more affirmative action. Roe v. Wade, reverse, start over, erase. All of these things are happening in a very, very, very tense political year. And I encourage you not to be distracted, to pay attention to what is going on. Do not let someone tell you That slavery was not that bad. Slavery did not exist. Things got better after Martin Luther King Jr. Things got better after the Civil War. Don't let someone talk about this country's very complicated and disgusting history with African Americans as if it is a Disney movie. It is not. It's unfortunate. It's sad. But it happened. And it's not that we have to live on it because people, oh, you don't have to keep talking about it, Carrie. We know it happened. Yeah, I know you know what happened. But you can't let someone tell you it didn't. We have to document these things in real time and spread the word. The same way you hear um, Nikki's diss track to Meg and Meg's diss track to Nikki and you're sending it to your friends during the day. I encourage you to to find a piece of history, African-American history, um, somewhere on social media. Make it a quick read, a quick listen and pass it to your friends. This racial gaslighting has to stop. We have to be able to understand where we come from so we know where we're going. I've said this on the show before. What is your address? Not just the success, but where do you want to go? And who are you taking with you? And I truly believe you can't do any of that unless you know where you come from. Unless you see your full humanity. If you understand your light and your shadows. It makes you so powerful. No one can take that from you. When I sat on that desk at CNN and that white man tried to tell me that we were all created equal and he tried to cut me off every five seconds to distract my train of thought so I could not speak truth to power, I stayed even and I stayed focused because I knew my history and I knew where I was going. And I saw my full humanity. I didn't see his. And he sat there and proved me right by trying to ignore, marginalize, not hear not see our stories erase our stories our guest today whether she realized it or not has documented our story and this country's history with mental health African American mental health our health and what it looked like and what it could look like and where it needs to be fixed and I appreciate her for doing that go out and get that book it's called Madness by Antonia Hilton thank y'all for listening to Naked